Today on Ag News Daily. Saw for the first time a huge centronella bush. I'm used to you know, lighting a candle on my deck, but those come from a big, beautiful yellow flower. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here flying solo on today's Ag News Daily podcast. Mike, as many of you probably heard from yesterday, was feeling a little under the weather, so we're giving him a break today. Gonna let him fight this one out, get his voice back, and quite frankly, I didn't want to listen to his voice again after yesterday. No, just kidding. All in good fun. But obviously, there are some big headlines. There is one major headline, if not two major headlines, that are dominating today's news cycle. As we talked about yesterday in the podcast, we did not yet have an officially signed agreement. And we saw today that U.S. and Chinese officials did announce a limited preliminary agreement on Friday, which would halt, so to speak, the trade war. It would put on pause those tariffs that were intended to be put on another $160 billion worth of ag, of, excuse me, Chinese products starting December 15th. So we're going to see that officially be taken off the table, but President Trump did say that he is not going to take off any of the tariffs completely, not going to take all of those tariffs off completely. He did say, however, that they would reduce the tariff rate on the roughly $120 billion of goods and bring that from 15% where it sits today down to about 7.5%. But it sounds like President Trump was saying that that's really the only enforcement mechanism that they have for this round of trade agreements. So it's important to keep that round, that tariff on this until this phase two deal, excuse me, until the phase two deal begins negotiations. So we're not when not sure when that is going to happen, but it does seem like it was a win for U.S. agriculture in particular. The commodity markets responded today and the stock markets responded yesterday. So it was a good day for agriculture all around. As we know, the Chinese are supposed to be buying about $50 billion worth of agricultural goods on, t- on top of others. But we haven't really heard a confirmation from Chinese negotiators or officials that they are confirming that that is true. We've just heard President Trump tout that, but China has yet to confirm that. I think that's been one of the problems in the past, as we've seen some of these trade negotiations continue on. So that is one thing that we will have to continue to watch, is whether or not China is going to confirm and make some U.S purchases on farm commodities specifically, but it was a good day for agriculture, especially in the commodity markets. Another big piece of news for today that we have been watching very closely is what's going on in the UK. They had their general elections yesterday, and the winner of the UK elections was from the Conservative Party, and that's Boris Johnson. Now, what this means for agriculture in particular, or not necessarily agriculture, but our trade relations in particular, Boris Johnson has been a conservative who has been touting that he will be out of the UK, or be out of the EU, excuse me, by the end of January. That was one of his platform running points, is that 
the UK needs to exit or Brexit from the EU as soon as possible. And now that he has taken over and the Conservative Party holds a majority in their political office there, it seems that that may be happening sooner rather than later. So we will continue to watch that. I was watching today on the news that it seems now that Ireland and Scotland want to exit from the UK. So it's going to be an interesting trickle-down effect, I think, to watch here. But once the UK does get that Brexit deal completed, President Trump said he is confident that we are going to be able to see fast negotiations happen with them as well. So lots of things moving on the trade front, including some frustrations from senators over the USMCA process, specifically Republican senators. The House is still on track to vote on the USMCA agreement this week, but several Republican senators are complaining and saying that they won't have a say in the process and they should under the Trade Promotion Authority. Some GOP senators are expected to vote against USMCA when it comes to the floor, and we're not sure why. As President Trump has said, the GOP should be largely in support of the USMCA agreement, but there are some who feel their voices aren't being heard. However, we still are continuing to watch that. We haven't seen anything happen on the House floor yet. Haven't seen a vote happen yet. I'm guessing it's been overshadowed this week by what is going on on the U.S.-China trade front. But hopefully now that we have some of that in place, we could see the House vote on that. And of course, they head to recess next week. So they really only have another week here to make something happen in Congress. But we will continue to watch that story as well. Turning our attention over to what's going on in agricultural production. I saw this come across the wires the other day, and that is looking at acreage numbers. Yes, I know we're already talking about where those final numbers are going to be for this year. December 10th was, of course, the USDA WASD report where we did not see any acre or yield adjustments yet. The January report is really where analysts and traders are expecting those numbers to be adjusted. While well, we saw farmers that participated in the U.S. crop subsidy programs reported their prevent plantings as of December 2nd, we saw about 11.432 million acres of corn, 4.461 million acres of soybeans, and 2.220 million acres of wheat. And that is according to the USDA. They said, as of December 2nd, we saw, including failed acres, about 87, just over 87 million acres of corn planted. Only 75, just over, barely over 75 million acres of soybeans planted. And 46.8 million acres of wheat planted. And for those of you sitting there doing the math... We are well below where the USDA has pegged us. Corn acres, as of the latest or last USDA report, pegged us at 89.9 million acres of corn. And like I said there, those farmers doing surveys as well pegged their corn acres at 87 million acres. 
So that's something we'll have to continue to see adjusted here, hopefully in the January WASDE report. That should give some upside potential to the corn markets and the soybean markets. And I believe the wheat market as well. But wheat continues to dominate in today's commodity markets. Before I get to those, though, I have just one other quick piece of news to share with you all today before we check those out. And that is for those of you that have listened to the Ag State of Mind podcast in particular. And if you haven't yet listened to Jason's podcast, Ag State of Mind, I highly encourage you to do so. He talks a lot about mental health and healthcare in rural America, and we've seen the push to get more Reese's available, especially to those in rural America who need the help with healthcare and more specifically mental health. Well, we have one piece of that pie, one piece of the solution here, and that's from coming from us from the Federal Communications Commission. They voted unanimously on Thursday to move forward with a new rule that would designate a three-digit number, which is going to be 988, as the new nationwide number for a mental health crisis hotline. So it's not specifically for agriculture, but they did say, they made specific comments here talking about agriculture and saying that as a country, as an industry, agriculture has fallen behind. And for those who are suffering from depression, anxiety, and addiction issues, it's exciting to see that this has been put in place. So we should see that 988 national hotline number be able to be up and running for those of us suffering from a little more stress and this year has definitely been one of those years when you look at all the factors impacting agriculture including but not limited to the commodity markets but today's commodity markets were actually a positive they started off the day overnight into today's morning trading session, we saw soybeans open 13 cents higher. Unfortunately, they couldn't quite close that high, but they still are in the green as well as almost all the other commodities. With the exemption here, starting off with the December corn contract in the red, just down three quarters of a cent to close at 366 and a quarter. The March up three cents on the day to end at 380 and three quarters. Soybeans still had some major gains on the day with a January contract closing up nine and a half cents to end at 907 and three quarters. The March up nine and a quarter cent to close at 921 and three quarters. In the wheat pits, the December front month contract unchanged on the day to close at 539 and a quarter. The March up two and a quarter cent to close at 532 and a half. Looking over in the livestock markets, they had a very strong day as well, especially in the feeder cattle complex. But starting off here, looking at the December live cattle contract, closed up at dollar ninety-five to end at one twenty-two thirty-seven and a half. The February put on two dollars and forty-five cents to close at one twenty-seven fifty-five. In the feeder cattle pits, not quite limit up on the day, but still strong gains with the January contract adding $3.12 to close at $145.67. The March added $2.80 to close at $146.25. In the lean hog contract, the December contract changed down $0.52.5 to close at $60.47.5, while the February added just $0.85 to close at $69.50. And of course, rounding out our markets with the dairy. They were 
Unfortunately, the only ones, it seems, that did not have some positive sentiment on China trade news today. With the December contract closing down three cents to end at 1940, the January lost 23 cents to close at 1801. Now for today's conversation, we are turning it over to a discussion we had with Kenda Wrestler Friend looking at Cuban agriculture. Well, we are very excited to welcome Kenda Wrestler Friend, who is the president and founder of KRF Public Relations, who recently took a very interesting trip to Cuba to study Cuban agriculture. First of all, Kenda, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you all. So, Kenda, obviously there are a lot of moving pieces to Cuban agriculture, but can you just give us your general overview of how Cuban agriculture compares to the U.S.'s agricultural system? Absolutely. I was, uh, as you mentioned, in Cuba recently uh, in mid-November, and I was fascinated by this island economy, because if you think about comparing Cuba to a Hawaii, they are certainly light years apart. As we all know, there is an embargo on Cuba, which means they cannot, their imports and exports are very limited with the United States. So it's really a land of farmers farming like we did here in the U.S., you know, pre-1950s, but then also being as innovative as people are doing here, trying to do, you know, urban farming with, you know, chickens and things in their backyard. So I would say it was absolutely kind of a, a country where you saw a little bit of everything and you felt like you were back in time and also back to the future. Well, now let's talk a little bit about the aspect of being back in time. I'm not all that familiar with, with Cuban agricultural practices. Are there any GMOs allowed in Cuba? Are they able to adopt that kind of uh, technology? You know, it's interesting. We were at, uh, and they they do a lot of work cooperatively, which was really interesting to see. And we were at the Alamar Organic Farm, and I asked that exact question to Isis, and her name is Isis, and she said she's the good Isis. But <laughs> anyway, and talking about the fact that really they are, you know, pesticides aren't possible there because they can't get them and they can't make them. So they're kind of organic by default. And so when I asked her about GMO, she's like, she just kind of laughed at me and said, you think that's where we would go if that was the first thing we could get? You know, because again, their ecosystem, they're having to do things like I actually saw for the first time a huge centronella bush. I'm used to you know, lighting a candle on my deck, but those come from a big, beautiful yellow flower that they plant all around their various plots of land to keep the bugs out. Really, the only corn I saw there was planted as a refuge along the edge of this field. And I, I asked the farmer through the interpreter, I said, you know, gosh, your corn, what's that all about? And he said, well, that's that's where the bugs go first. And then I, I shared with him our refuge in the bag concept of planting seeds, and that just kind of blew his mind. So, yeah, they're very, you know, kind of by, by just the cards they've been dealt, have to be figuring out organic agriculture at its most productive. That's really interesting. So, so obviously they're not producing the same quantity of crops that we're producing, that mass production of corn, soybeans, and wheats. Sounds like they're producing a lot of fruit and, and vegetables, Kenda, or what does their actual production it, it system? Yeah. So sugarcane was the biggie for so long. And again, we as the United States kind of exploited that in the 
30s, 40s, and 50s, when, uh, when Cuba was kind of America's playground, they just monocropped uh, sugarcane because it was a huge cash crop. In fact, when you're in the town of Havana, you notice these huge doors on the buildings. And I asked the tour guide, because the sugarcane was so valuable, the traders would actually pull their carts of sugarcane into their homes and shut their front door at night, you know, while they were waiting for the boat. So that was kind of fascinating to see. They also did, um, of course, tobacco for the famous uh, Cuban cigars. So really, they had those two crops going. And then with the revolution in 1959, Fidel Castro and their whole world kind of turned upside down and backwards. And so then they kind of didn't know what to grow. And so it's interesting that uh, the Cubans actually eat more rice per capita than people in China. Which, it, which fascinated me, and yet they can't grow it. So that rice is a huge import. So in terms of fruits and vegetables, they are growing a lot of really interesting things. I probably saw the prettiest green pepper I've ever seen in my life, and yet it's hard for them to get the food, if that makes sense. Let me explain. So basically, if you're a farmer, 80% of what you grow goes to the government for the hospitals and the schools and all the other public institutions. And then that 20% is what you can sell at a farmer's market. So it actually means there sometimes isn't a lot to be had. So it's ironic they're growing fruits and vegetables, but have a really hard time getting them if you live, if you live in the city, which is where about 70% of the Cuban population lives. So it's interesting so, to think of the kind of direct marketing that happens in Cuba at a farmer's market. Did you have a chance to visit the uh, the farmer's markets? We did. We did. We went to one directly, and it was just fascinating, the the hustle of the folks there. And yucca is a you know one of their – a huge starch that they use. We actually had some really lovely uh, yucca. Uh, uh, plantains had some really amazing plantain chips. But yeah, they're in the farmer's market. It's just – you know, a very vibrant, you know, active place where, you know, one gal selling carrots and the gal next to her is selling braided onions. And they're just really, and especially when they saw us as Americans, they knew that we would probably have the Cuban unit of currency, the kook, as opposed to the Cuban peso. The country has two currency systems going, which is really kind of confusing. So again, but the kook is worth is actually trading a dollar to dollar with the U.S. dollar. So that was fascinating. But, yeah, the farmer's markets are where they're trying to supplement their ration cards. And so maybe we can also talk about that that step in the system. Yeah, so when you say ration cards, I automatically think of, like, post-World War II or even during World War II when people had such a shortage of food supply they had to get a ration card. Is that the same type of system that they're using in Cuba? It is, and it's fascinating because whether you're the general manager at the Hotel Nationale or – um, a single mother, everybody gets the same ration card or the same ration. So I actually, our host, or, or actually our guide on the trip brought his in to our, our, one of our group settings, and I took a bunch of pictures of it, and it really looks like it's straight from the 1950s. It's like a little paper card with little check, bo check boxes that get initialed, and you are given your ration card, and actually what he does is he gives his to his grandfather. Because of as being a tour guide, he actually is making more, you know, making a decent living, and his grandpa needs his rice. 
So it's a very interesting system, but you are assigned to a certain bodega and you may go in there and we weren't supposed to take pictures, but maybe I did. And it was just, it really was truly like something you would see right straight out of the depression with this, this really kind of archaic counter and a few little shelves in the back that showed uh, cooking oil. What they had that day was cooking oil and they had a little bit of sugar. If you had your, you know, hadn't gotten yours yet. Um, there was uh, no chicken that day. So if you need a chicken, you're just going to have to come back and hope they have some that day. So that, but, but, but every, but again, the flip side is every single person has that basic ration. So there's really no homelessness or, you know, hungry people, which is kind of, you know, you think about there's something to be learned from everywhere. So granted, rice, chicken, and cooking oil and beans can get pretty old pretty fast, as I tell my teenagers, but they've got that. So that's kind of the first part of the system. So everyone has the ration card, and then they use their uh, disposable income, of which there isn't much, at the farmer's markets, and then also at the kook store, which is what we would call a grocery store, uh, a supermarket, I guess we would call that here in the U.S. For the, for the canned goods. Mm-hmm. So the the ration cards can be used at the farmer's market. That's a, for, for lack of a better phrase, that's a cash exchange type of market. Exactly. Yes. And if you think the average Cuban, their average salary is 50 kooks a month. So essentially $50. So it really took me almost the whole week to get my head around that, to say, okay, the ration card's providing food, their health care is free, their education is free in quotation marks, as you think about their economy. And yet at the kook store, a pack of diapers, 30 diapers cost 11 kook. So you think about what percent that would be of somebody's, because again, as an island, everything comes from somewhere else. So yeah, it's a, it's a cash economy. Of course, our U.S. credit cards and debit cards didn't work there. So it was also an interesting experience to truly live with what I had. Huh. Wow. That is fascinating to think that it's been, gosh, are we 70 years since the revolution now that, that this island has been operating this way. Kenda, when you talk to yeah. folks out there in the countryside, were they, by and large, fairly pleased with the situation? Was it just something that's just life to them? Uh, you know, I was probably most impressed by the spirit of the Cuban people. There was no, oh, woe is me. It just it, they were really figuring it out. Like the farm, our first farm we visited, a 43-year-old farmer, he inherited the land from his dad and grandpa. And really, he said he knew that he was better at raising vegetables than cows. And so he really, it was almost like talking to a farmer in Kansas, except this guy had about... Um, 10 hectares, you know, so really not a huge plot to make a go on it. And so really, I think it's all they've known. And so in 2010, the government actually allowed more people, they they had to get people off the government rolls. And so they started allowing more small business. So especially those folks, like the women at the sewing co-op who are now allowed to sell shirts, they're going gangbusters. You know, and again, gangbusters for them means they're going to make 200 a month versus 50 a month. So, yeah, it's (laughs) and just wonderfully kind people. And and also that spirit of working together. So like Sandor, our guide, was saying how, you know, when he knew that his bodega was out of chicken, but somebody else has had some, 
I mean, talk about a grapevine. People are like, hey, this part, this part of Havana today and that part tomorrow. And so I think the, the communication and the cohesiveness of the people is strong. Obviously, there's still a dictator at the top and some really repressive policies in that state. But yeah, I was, I was very happy, um, Mike, to see that people really were not bummed, if you will. Hmm. They had good spirits and good morale, it sounds like. But Kenda, I know you mentioned this to me before we chatted on the podcast today, and that's just the fact that you guys were one of the last groups to get to go to Cuba before we saw another restriction on travel again. What did what did that meaning hold to you? Um, it was a little creepy. So I uh, retired from my corporate job in February and met a colleague of mine in Florida who invited me along on this trip, which was put together by the Mennonite Economic Development Association's Sarasota chapter. They've been in relation with folks in Cuba for a long time. So I booked my airline ticket right away and was all excited. And then in June, our United, the United States has canceled the person-to-person um, you have to travel to Cuba on one of X many reasons, and that big one is now gone. And so it was, but we were grandfathered in. I had purchased an airline ticket on United, and I had a designated place I was staying. And so we went in, but it was almost creepy to be in the farmer, the big, huge, like, tourist market where the cruise ships used to go there in the port of Havana. And our group of 20 were the only people walking around. And, you know, you wanted just to buy everything just to make their lives better. And so it was very, it was very strange. And the people in, um, the, everyone we met in Cuba is hoping for a, a change here in the United States because when the, the increased restrictions, it's just kind of another punch in the stomach to them. So yeah, knowing that I'm one of the last ones in there for a while and there's still uh, student exceptions. And of course, the Europeans and Canadians can still go there, but uh, it was a little—it was a little weird knowing that I could be one of the last Americans to be there for a while. That is, and when you were thinking about traveling down there, I want to come back to something you said earlier. American credit and debit cards don't work on the island. Did, you had to take a, a pile of cash down so you'd have uh, have food to eat for the week and all of that. I did. It was fascinating. We stayed at the Martin Luther King Center, which is this amazing community center there in, um, in, on the north side of Havana. So our meals, we actually ate, you know, family style. We ate most of them there. But yeah, I had to say, okay, I want to, of course, I wanted to, you know, again, when you go to Europe, you buy all kinds of souvenirs. Here it's like, okay, I was able to, you can bring home one box of cigars, which I did that for my husband, and a few other little things. But, yeah, I really had to all of a sudden, I bet cooperative economy, a couple other colleagues from my, my local church here went. So there were four of us from Indianapolis, and I was, you know, bumming money off of Heidi and saying, okay, Lisa, I've got a few kooks left. What do you want to spend? Because, of course, you can't take it with you. You had to, it's kind of like the price is right. You had to spend every last dollar. And we were responsible for several of our own meals. But again, it was like six kook for this amazing, like I have a, a cute picture of someone took of me eating this beautiful skewered shrimp and rice and veggies, which again, here in Indianapolis would be, you know, a, a $20 meal. Huh, that is very fascinating. Kendo, this has been really interesting. And I know that you're a writer, you're a blogger, you're going to put together some articles, perhaps from your trip to Cuba. If folks would like to connect with you and read some of those articles, see some of those pictures, how can they do that? Oh, well, thank you so much. Yes, I really have to get going on all that. But my website is 
krfpr.com and that's uh, basically my initials krfpr.com and that on blog post posted there my my twitter handle is indiekrf and so yes i'll be sharing a lot more about that about that farmer who hosted us and also his really interesting irrigation systems and i'll be writing about uh, isis the good isis with uh with her farming approach and so yeah there's just uh, i have a notebook here of about 125 pages of handwritten notes so well, i've uh, i've got my work cut out for me <laughs> that you do well thank you so much for joining us today kenda thank you for the invitation and wish everyone a great holiday season Well, a big thank you there to Kenda. Interesting stuff I always like hearing about other countries' agricultural economies and systems. And I think it's really neat that Kenda got to be one of the last groups to visit Cuba and see their agricultural system. Or kind of, you know, it's very different from the U.S. They're an island state, island country, and they just have to survive on a whole lot less. But we have tons of great content like Kenda's interview and more on the Ag News Daily website and podcast. You can find us at agnewsdaily.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ag News Daily. And folks, I encourage you to check out over the weekend here, over your coming holiday travels, check out some of the other podcasts on our network, Global Ag Network. There's The Working Cows, Ag State of Mind, Moving Iron, and so many other great podcasts. I'm sure there's something out there that fits you. So do check those out. With that, folks, I hope y'all have a great weekend, and we'll see you right back here on Monday.